When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying And you've taken all the potions you had left And you feel like you are doomed because that demon you set loose is coming after you And you can smell its breath Don't ever give up Hello, welcome to Real Point Exchange. This is Adam and uh, today I'm joined by my co-host, Alphabetical <laughs> It's me, Chris And it's uh, Vince and all right, did we do that right? Did we did we manage to do that in alphabetical order? I think so. I hope so. I couldn't tell time, which our special guest host, Greg Sosie, could probably attest to. How are you doing, Greg? Uh, I'm doing well. And, you know, sounded fine. As, you know, looking at my keyboard, um, you know, A's way over on the left and V's closer to the middle. So you've clearly nailed it. So, Greg, I'm sure you came here to talk with semantics with us. Absolutely. I feel that... The al- the alphabet's arrangement is arbitrary. I don't think it should be A to Z. I think that it should go by increasing number of strokes used to make the letter. I is clearly first. So, Greg, you're doing oh. something, right? I'm doing several things. The most current and recent is I uh, launched the Kickstarter for Termination Shock last week. As of today, we're around $4,000. And... Coming up on, I think, creeping towards 250 backers. So asking for 12,000, uh, which I think is pretty reasonable for, uh, you know, a, a sort of middle class game of this sort. Greg, I'm familiar with your other games, but I'm actually not that familiar with this new one. Could you like go? Uh, that's that's because it's new. Uh, unless oh. unless you've been listening to our, our lengthy and discursive playtest podcast, which is on SoundCloud as Termination Shock. It's a science fiction game. And initially, this is what's interesting, is that initially I wanted it to be a little more grim and dark and, you know, like Unknown Armies and Delta Green and a a lot of my other work. But the playtesters I got, uh, the initial two were Lachlan Sudarshan and uh, Jose Garcia, not the Jose Garcia from... Daedalus Games. It's a different Jose Garcia. That's very important for a certain segment of the game buying population. But they got on board, and as we're as I'm describing this, the uh, you know the setting, which uh, it started out as uh, you know it's the future, and you're kind of the underclass of the solar system. There are people who have achieved technological singularity, sort of post humanity but they've embargoed all the technology to your neighborhood. So the people who live on Earth and on Venus get to be these godlike entities with massively accelerated intellects. But those of you stuck on Mars and in the asteroid belt, no, you just, you remain as sort of the backup copy of humanity's unaltered genome. And as if that wasn't enough of a hassle... There are murderous AIs in the depths of the solar system. They've pretty much taken over the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And, you know, it, they're, uh, they're following your basic kill all humans paradigm. And so I describe how they are, are trapped between the increasingly detached and uncaring ex-humans of Earth and the psychopathically murderous robots in the deep solar system and Lachlan says you know what I think this needs is a Fraser Crane vibe <laughs> it okay. did though to be and fair it, 
it did and it worked great um the the twist in the setting is that well the deep version of the twist is that my hand wavium is what i call subwave technology and this underlies how the ex-humans are able to amplify their intellects and it's how the ais are designed they're based on this technology that's what the martians and the people in the asteroid belt are forbidden to mess around with but it also turns out that 99.9% of the cosmos subwaves work a little differently than they do around soul and you know there are just these these places these systems that are uh, you know one alien describes it as well it's not that they actually rotate but think of it as Everywhere else, they rotate counterclockwise, but in your home system, they rotated clockwise. And so all that intellect enhancement that the ex-humans and the robots were using would stop. It would just shut down cold once they left your solar system. And they're like, oh, so they can't leave without becoming dumb like us. They're like, exactly. They're like, wow, what does it do in the rest of the cosmos? Oh, um, everywhere else, it's your basic location agnostic communications uh, method. So they are now, they they get rescued by a a loose consortium of poorly organized do-gooder aliens who have very rudimentary English. That's all, you know, samples from movies and songs. So you get rescued by this little thing that's about the size of a schnauzer covered with teeth and pointy blades saying, come with me if you want to live in the Arnold Schwarzenegger quote and gesturing you towards its weird spaceship. And, you know, because there were killbots falling from the sky like rain, they're like, Oh yeah, living, living sounds good. And that was, that was the start of, uh, you know, the, the first termination shock play test. And so that's, and it's also pretty much the setting is that you are cosmic refugees in a vast cosmopolitan universe that doesn't really know anything about you or understand anything about you. And it's mutual. So, and, you know, and hilarity ensues. (laughs) Where did this come from? Because you're sort of, I mean, you, you admit it yourself, you're sort of known for, shall we say, darker? rpg fair or you know maybe a little more serious rpg fair like how did that well i mean it's not entirely frivolous you know there are there are some moments that get pretty sharp in i think it's i think the best episode is the one called war crimes and karaoke in which our two (laughs) heroes find out that what they thought was a training simulation to teach them how to use laser guns. You know, they, they're like, this video game has really advanced graphics and, you know, that the reactions of these aliens seem, you know, really kind of emotionally intense and dramatic. And then they find out, no, that wasn't a game, dude. That was a, basically a crowdsourced invasive war of, uh, of interference. And they're like, wait, so everyone we shot in what we thought was a video game was actually an alien somewhere that died. And, you know, the the aliens who set them up with this are like, what are these video games you keep talking about? No shit. 
And yeah, they had this, this horrible moment of realization. And in the same session, they were uh, setting up a giant karaoke contest in order to, you know, present human culture to the aliens. And it wound up being won by aliens because once the aliens found out there was an artistic contest, they're like, well, can we, can we compete too? And uh, yeah, it turns out those little schnauzer sized uh, frog cat toothy critters, they can really sing. I, I honestly, everything I read about this, everything I listen to, it just, it's just great. Cause I, I don't really think you get culture shock as a concept in role-playing games as the central <laughs> conceit. Oh, well, and one of the other things I've been doing with the alien species I've written up is that none of them, none of the major ones you interact with have sexual dimorphism or even gender. So it's all just, oh, yeah, for the the three major species you're you're most likely to encounter, pretty much any one of them could, you know, procreate with any other one of them in a fertile way. And so some of them are like, Oh, well, these humans, they're, they're, they're binary. And so men must all have all these masculine traits. And if you don't have those, something's wrong with you. So some of the aliens study humans and are just super casually sexist. And others <laughs> are just like, well, no, I just don't get this, the whole thing. Why aren't you with Dave? You two are clearly perfect for each other. Well, but I'm only interested in women. Well, could Dave become a woman then? I don't think Dave wants to be a woman and I don't think I want Dave to be a woman. I don't think you know what you want, human. <laughs> I love and so the, these are the sort of things that we have, have gotten involved with in, in Termination Shock. And the first season, uh, I'm calling them seasons, the first bunch of sessions I uh, ran for Jose and Lachlan. And then Jose's like, I kind of want to run this game. And I'm like, oh, well, I would certainly like to see how the mechanics feel from the other side of the GM screen. And so for the second season, we recruited Violet Kirk, who was a great get because uh, I really like her art. She drew some aliens for me in my other science fiction game. And so, yeah, we brought her in and uh, she did the illustration for uh, that, that you can see at the Kickstarter and is doing all the... Uh, all the drawings for the game. We've got one we're going to put up pretty soon that is basically an alien checking out its Ansible cell phone. And as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is gold. This is fantastic. Just because she has nailed how alien this creature looks. But at the same time, its gestures and posture of focus around the device will be completely familiar to anyone who's ridden a bus or a train in the past few years. So that you is, can see it hunched over its screen. You know, this this whole premise actually reminds me of another sci-fi series. Have you heard of Light Years Beneath My Feet? Nope. That's a series in which a human accountant is kidnapped, uh, put into an alien, like, illegal exotic pet trade, rescued by alien SPCA, uh, to recognize that he's sapient and then he becomes a chef with a bunch of random alien refugees this sounds great put put the title in the chat yeah it, the the tone just seems very similar it's a very particular kind of sci-fi where the stakes are very high but like it's it's almost like a weird office drama 
or yeah well the uh the last game we played just you know yesterday actually uh i got to test out the the social combat rules which work a lot like physical combat and intellectual combat it's basically you know roll do damage you have intellectual and uh, uh social hit points and when whenever you run out of any hit points of a particular type you take a consequence which is usually chosen by the gm and so i'm like oh well let's let's have a social uh let's have a show, social contest where my character is trying to get you know the woman he's kind of had this giant crush on to come away with him on the ship in the face of this tremendous danger that's that's facing this the space station that they're on and i'm like so you know i'm expecting that oh well you know it'll go back and forth and we'll uh We'll see how it goes. And, and I, you know, I'm probably pretty well situated and I'll probably take a few, a few points of exhaustion, but nothing serious. And the dice just decided to crush me. And I found out just how fast. Yeah. All it took the GM was three good rolls to reduce my character to a blubbering sack of guts. It was great. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. I'm... Uh, we have a giant backlog of unedited sound files. And so, yeah, when, when we get to that one, that'll be a, that'll be a fine day. So, you know, tragic end to that romantic subplot, loving it. And, you know, from the system's point of view, I'm like, okay, this has teeth. If this had been, if this had been a physical uh, confrontation, I would have been real close to the, uh, you know, the list of consequences that includes death or, you know, blinded until you can get your eyes replaced or, you know, all kinds of permanent nasty stuff. I mean, that that's definitely a good sign, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would rather have something where the rules can, where it can get really nasty really fast than one of these things where you have this dragged out conflict where you're just scratching at each other and gradually chipping away. And it's, you know, you, you can kind of tell who's going to win, but it's, it's like watching a landmark come at you when you're driving across Kansas, because you can see it from miles and miles and miles away, but it just never seems to get any closer and it takes forever to get there. And I'm like, Nope. (laughs) <laughs> I want this to just be, I, I would rather have people saying, wow, that escalated fast than say, wow, that was 20 minutes of fun stretched into two hours. So what you're saying is it's the difference between an unknown army's fist fight and an unknown army's gunfight. There it is. Absolutely. And, and with unknown armies, that's a little bit, you know, that that's a little bit intentional. Oh yeah. It's definitely. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We want the fist fights to be survivable and they can still be very tense because you still don't know your hit points in unknown armies. And it's like, okay, am I feeling cruddy just because I've been punched harmlessly a lot and my GM is evocative or does this indicate that I've broken a rib and I'm bleeding internally? It's all just pain. I don't know. Maybe I should negotiate with this guy. (laughs) Yeah. I think the, Dice system is one of the first things that really jumped out to me. I've I've played Better Angels. I played uh, no oh gosh, 
noir uh, the titles eluding me got a dirty world. a dirty world dirty world thank you i've like i the social combat of it like it really kind of caught me off guard and you're doing a little something different with this system if i'm not mistaken than you've done with others there's a different it's a little bit different it's it's a lot lighter than say rain probably closer in mechanical density to a dirty world yeah. Dirty World is very compact uh, because it's a film noir game. You don't need to have like a thousand different spells or or funky powers or anything like that. So it can be just this single entity where everyone pretty much has, everyone can pretty much attempt the same things. It's just that some people are much better at those things. In a film noir game, all you basically need to do is punch someone, shoot someone, interrogate someone, tell lies, sneak around, and steal things, right? Anyone can try those, and you've got your complete film noir game. For a science fiction game, obviously, uh, you you have a much wider array of things that people are going to do, um, and a lot of it is going to be based on what cool toys you have. So I want the central mechanic to be very simple, but allow for a lot of customization of effect uh, through whether that's through, you know, you have technology aiding you or because your particular character is optimized as a gunslinger. So the way the mechanics work, you want to hear the, the, the breakdown of it? Yes, please. I'd love to. Sure. All right. So it's based on traits that I named harmony, energy, and gravity and uh, energy basically in all aspects of your character determines how good you are at changing your environment around you, how good you are at imposing your will on the world. Gravity is how good you are at not having the world impose its will on you. It's, you know, so those two, you can be, you know, the, uh, the unstoppable force or the immovable object. Um, And then you have harmony, which is how well, you regulate it, how well you adapt to the world around you. And so you've got these three traits and you rate them at either a D6, a D8, or a D10. And you, you know, you apply one die to each. You're, you can't promote the dice. Once you've assigned those, they're fixed. They're that way forever. Um, and when you roll, you take the two highest dice. These are called the champ dice. Compare, add them together, compare that either to someone else's champ dice or a target number. So, which is all you know, not very, the lowest die is called the runt die uh, and is usually what indicates your effect. So if uh, you're hitting someone, your champ dice determine if you hit and your runt die is how much damage you did if you did hit. So in that social combat where, you know, my character got, Uh, emotionally wrecked part of what made it so devastating so fast was that not only did the GM roll high, but the runt dice were unusually high. So I'm taking like these four point hits every time. So the way this works out, so it's the core mechanic, the core resolution loop, real simple, roll three dice, add the two highest. The, The little adjustment to it is because the dice represent three different things When you succeed, you can tell how you succeeded. So if I succeeded because my gravity and harmony were high, it's because 
I was the stable object around which everything else moved. And I adapted well to my circumstances that, you know, it's, it's like that, uh, that Rudyard Kipling line about, can you keep your head when everyone around you is losing theirs? Whereas if you succeed with energy and gravity, it's more like you've just mauled everything. You just, you know, went after what you wanted, like a Kodiak bear and battered everything out of the way. If you succeed with harmony energy, that's more like your Errol Flynn dueling. And it's just like, oh no, the reason everything looks easy for me really is just because everything's easy for me. So by optimizing your dice picks, you can be like, okay, I want to be the character who, you know, it takes him a while to get up to speed, but once he's moved, once he's in motion, you know, you can't get in his way. So I'm going to go high gravity, low energy, or you can be, oh, I just want to be the one who gets along with everyone and nothing phases him and just moves through the world coolly making friends with everyone like the world's most interesting man. So I'm going to go high harmony, medium energy, low gravity. So when you fail, the other, the other thing this lets you do is that when you fail, you know exactly why you failed. You can say, oh, my energy die was one. I just wimped out on this. Or, you know, oh, my harmony die was the lowest one. I must have tripped over my own feet or just said the, the quiet part loud. And what this let me do is that the other thing that you can add to your characters to make them extra cool are called exploits and fail-safes. Exploits let you take a success and amplify it if it's the right kind of success. If it's that, you know, gravity, energy, Hulk smash success, you can buy exploits that are like, oh, do extra damage. If it's that energy harmony, I'm Errol Flynn type of success, you can get exploits that are like, oh, you can attack a second target. Uh, similarly with fail-safes, because you know how you failed, you can buy these things that, you know, when the runt die is the right type, let you mitigate your failure. So normally it's the GM who picks which consequence you get, right? But you could have, uh, there are fail-safes where it's like, oh, as long as you failed and your low die was the gravity die, you get to pick the consequence off the list instead of the GM picking it. Or, um, you know, with the, uh, you know, because your energy, you know, if your energy is low in this failure, you know, well, that just means that you're, you're laying in weight and you're, you know, you're conserving your strength. So you can get a bonus on your energy on the next action. So that allows events to be really personalized and it makes, you know, it makes it so that, your success with a 10 can be very different from my success with a 10 or from the next success with a 10 that you roll. It's not just mathematical. It has, you know, sort of these extra dimensions and flavors. You know, I, that seems to be a theme in a lot of your games is that the like mechanics are not just mathematical. They do impart flavor or they're at least very efficient. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you develop like, a mechanic that is both efficient and like appropriate to the type of game you're trying to create the sort of genre of tone. Well, I mean, my goal is always, I want emergent effects, right? Chess is the, the obvious game where you have all these simple 
rules. And, you know, the, the individual moves of the pieces are very simple, but the way they interact are incredibly complex and unpredictable. And similarly, I'm always aiming for ways that you can take a simple core mechanic, like roll a fistful of 10 ciders in rain, or a percentage roll in unknown armies, or in this case, roll three, take the two highest, compare it to another number. And I'm like, how can I pull more information out of that role? How can I make more parts of it mean more different things? You know, like, like the efficient dragon who uses every part of the princess. <laughs> of course. <laughs> A lot of it's just, just looking for it. The way that it winds up being appropriate for the game is often I just fool around with a lot of mechanics and see what they do and then adjust the tone of the game to fit that. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the one roll engine is not... I mean, I, I love the system. I think it's a great system. I think it's fast and versatile and robust, but it doesn't have a, a, an innate flavor. You can do hard-boiled, gritty crime drama with it in a dirty world. You can do epic fantasy in rain. You can do epic superheroes in wild talents. It is a, uh, well, you can make, and, and these reworkings of it, some of them are, we're going to use this pool of uh, 10-sided dice as a physics engine. And others are like, well, no, we're going to have it mean something entirely different. Uh, you know, in, in a dirty world, it's the same, uh, roll your 10-siders and look for matches, but it's much more focused on the interior experience of the character. Whereas in Wild Talents, say, it's mostly exterior. This one, what it has lent itself to in Termination Shock, one, it's very random. It can swing a lot. And so that makes it, it unpredictable and allows for it these, uh, you know, great come-from-behind victories like... Or, you know, come from or, or where you're out in front and you get completely clobbered. And I think that's uh, in this setting where everything is uh, based around the idea of these clashing cultures and and fundamental misunderstandings. You know, the idea that, oh, yeah, you know, this could get overturned. Events could could turn on a dime seems to work and seems to really uh, seems to really contribute to the sense of uncertainty and that, you know, oh, no, you you don't know what's going on. You can't predict what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, this giant alien war fleet could get overcome by this, uh, uh, you know, unlikely hero, you know, Martian farm boy and a snub fighter who just lucks into it. Or it turns out that... Just hold him, he walks. I've never felt worse about myself than right now. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's actually really Man, interesting. If, uh, if you've used the what? swinginess to create this sense of uh, unease or like where everything could possibly happen, it's kind of directly in tension with the Fraser Crane tone, which is like a perpetually stable sitcom environment. So ah. how, does, how does that get negotiated? Well, the Fraser Crane element that they added was less a matter of having a stable sitcom environment where it resets to, uh, you know, the, the, everything goes back into its place at the end of the session, as much as we want it to be like Fraser Crane, where these two guys who 
think they're super cultural and smart and better than everyone else are constantly hilariously shown the error of their ways. They, they're they like, basically, we want characters who are ridiculous fops and also at the same time, magnificent space heroes. So the, the character concept of half Han Solo, half Niles Crane has been shockingly robust and very amusing. Okay. Okay. I was wondering how, like how much of that was like into character choice, how much that was baked into the setting. A lot of it was character choice. I mean, you could run this in a very grim and gritty way. And in that case, the it's propensity for sudden reversals could take on a very dark tone. And it's like, Oh yeah. You know, we, you, you never know how a fight's going to turn out. You never, you, you can walk in with the advantage of numbers and technology. And yeah, probably, you know, that's the way to bet. The way to bet is on the guys with the, the better guns and the superior armor and more people, but you never know because the best result that's probably going to happen for the strongest guy with the best weapon is uh, an 18 and the best result that's going to happen to the schmuck who's hoping to get lucky. Hey, look, it's an 18. These numbers shift around a little bit for the, the basic book. We're keeping everyone in sort of the uh, six, eight, 10 die framework. Some of the alien races get an advance and a reduction in die type. So it's possible for them to have D12, D8, D4 as their dice, hmm. which which makes things interesting, less swingy, but when they miss, they miss really hard. Or you can, uh, with those same aliens, wind up with a spread that's just all three are D8s, and you have to differentiate the dice by color or something so that you know which one is your gravity die and which one is your energy die. That's actually something I wanted to bring up. It's kind of reminiscent of uh, Don't Rest Your Head in that manner, and that you have to think about not just the type, like the the type of die, but the color, and that that tends to create a certain like a uh, mechanical orientation where you have to do a little bit of number crunching just to figure out what you want to roll in the first place. Was there any like thought process on, on that matter? Well, I mean, what you need to roll, you know, you're never gonna roll more or less than three dice. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, almost never. There's like two exceptions I can think of, but. Most of the time, you're rolling your three dice, and most of the time, you're comparing them either to a target number the GM just told you, which is going to range between 10 for achievable but still meaningfully uncertain, up through 17 for you barely have a prayer. Uh, you know, 17 is like what you is the target number for trying to fly a spaceship when you don't really know how to fly a spaceship. I mean, but it's still doable. It's called the Hail Mary. The two exceptions are if you dodge, if you only defend, you don't roll any dice, but it's treated like uh, you have a difficulty of 12 to harm you. So it's not perfect protection, but it's pretty good protection. Uh, and the other uh, the other exception, uh, which I, I'm really pleased with, how, with thinking this out. I mean, it's going to sound obvious to everyone, but it took me like six months to... Uh, to come up with it is if you help someone out, you just roll your harmony die and you can swap it out with their harmony die. If yours is higher, which yeah, it's super simple, makes sense and is easy to remember. But the crazy thing about it is that 
it makes people who are high harmony really, really useful to people who are low harmony because it's like, okay, Mr. D10 Harmony, come here, help me fix this thing. And let's see if you can roll higher on your Harmony D10 than I can roll on my Harmony D6. So you have this powerful incentive to think of ways to help other people if you're a high harmony character, which is Mm. exactly what a high harmony character would want to do anyway. Interesting. Yeah, I just, it it, it seemed so, so pat. Kind of reminds me of how Mike Tyson used to have a guy running around giving it, like giving him a pep talk named Gator. (laughs) What? Seriously, Mike Tyson had like somebody in his, he employed his, man, you're the champ. You got this. Like, that's all he did. It's just, he's just rubbing that harmony all over Mike Tyson. Maybe I should edit that out, but that's what Man, I mean. uh, no, uh, you know, no. that's. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. It's, it's the reverse, like, slave in Caesar's ear, whispering, you're only a man. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right, baby. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I feel the need to outsource uh, ego. I think I've really got that. Uh, I think I've really kind of got that locked. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no. Um, what were we talking? We 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 got into the weeds. There. We were talking about mechanics, and then suddenly it went to Mike Tyson and Caesar. I was talking about the the concept of uh, each specific die being a reference to a stat, which I which I always find fascinating. Because usually, like with one roll engine, it's usually one to two thing. It's two stats, or like I have ten hard dice in mind. Yes, you have to you have to think about all of your social and like emotional well-being for every role. Whereas this is so much more uh, streamlined and less sort of emulational and more uh, just sort of Mm -hmm. gamey. You know, if you have a character who's... The the example character I came up with is basically Kimmy Schmidt in space with a gun, Mm -hmm. but anything she comes at is going to be with that Kimmy Schmidt high energy, uh, yeah, high energy focus. High and energy so, focus. It's poorly written if you think about it after the fact. What? I'm sorry. What? I have opinions oh, on no. Tina Fey. I know we have we have beef. We have beef with Tina Fey <laughs> on the podcast. Tina Fey, if you're listening, I have student loans. She's on Patreon. <laughs> it's okay. Patreon. It's okay. What did Tina Fey do to you? <laughs> We got trapped in an elevator, and I don't want to talk about it. She was my celebrity exception, but then... Not like this. Not like this. Oh, Lord. It was M. Night Shyamalan the whole time. I really like how Greg tried to pull us back on course, and we're like, nope. No, no, we've got it. We're we're off the highway. It's not our destination, but it's where we're going. Is this a logging trail? I don't know, but it's bumpy. As uh, I'm gonna try to pull us back on the road, but like I really like this aspect of it, Greg, because I've always heard, I think actually from you, that when you're playing an RPG game, it's a conversation between the game master and the player and the dice, and it seems like in the, this game in particular, like the dice have a whole lot more to say about what's going on and how it's going on and so forth and so so on. Is yeah, it? well, it, when you put it like that, yeah, the dice in Rain, and especially in Wild Talents, Wild Talents with the hard dice is where you have 
the you know the reliable accountant style dice giving you their input and here it's just like a loud frat boy on in daytona beach wow we go get tacos and (laughs) and so yes when you choose to consult the dice you know you have to be prepared for them to you know throw you some total jack move but this is something that uh something else that's in this um and which i'm uh uh, i kind of kind of uh, was watching Vincent Baker, right? And seeing how Apocalypse World was super popular and, you know, everyone was really inspired by it. And it took me a while to get it because I'm looking at Apocalypse World and I'm like, I'm not sure I understand why this, why, why people are treating this like it's super revolutionary. And the answer I came to, which, you know, maybe full of hot air, but is that it does a better job than many games of telling the GM exactly what they can and cannot do. And most games, the, the expectation is, oh, the GM will just wing it. And uh, if you're good at winging it, those games are great. Uh, someone, one of the, the criticisms leveled at Everway back in the day was, yeah, this is a great game. If you could figure out a way to pack John Tynes or Jonathan Tweet into every box and have them run it for you. If you have someone who's really, really good at being a GM, this is a terrific set of rules. If you have never run a game before, this is going to baffle you. You are going to look at this like the dog in that his master's voice print. And so what I've tried to do is, you know, kind of break myself of the assumption that everyone who's going to be running one of my games is going to be someone like me who, you know, got a degree in English at college and was always constantly reading and has always been fascinated with the question of how do you tell a good story anyway? And so one of the things that I did with uh, Termination Shock is I'm like, okay, here's a framework of how you build a session. And uh, sort of the ingredients list that I included for this framework. I'm like, okay, sometimes you're going to want to consult the dice. And that's when you want things to be really random and you want things to be really uncertain. Uh, you know, this is when you want to make the, the, the players sweat a little. You also, though, want to include a fair number of just decisions where it's, you know, A, or B and you don't have to roll for A and you don't have to roll for B, but you can't have both. And it needs to be a choice between two conflicting goods or two conflicting bads. It has to be a choice with teeth where, you know, if you, you know, if you decide to go back into the burning space station to try and grab the jewels, that's great. You might get the jewels or you might get fried. And if you do, it's not because the dice screwed you. It's because you screwed you. So you need to have some decisions. And you can also include what I, uh, you know, called puzzles. I'm thinking about how like the really, uh, really old D&D modules in my collection, like the 80s stuff, uh, has a number of, uh, it was especially prevalent with traps, is you'd have this trap where it would give you a clue. And if you could figure out what the clue meant, you could get past the trap without having to roll anything. 
And if you couldn't figure out what the clue meant, you couldn't get past the trap, no matter what you roll. And so I'm like, okay, so between puzzles, decisions, and stuff you roll dice for, you can have a lot of different ways to, uh, to challenge your players over the course of a session. And you probably want to mix it up if you include puzzles at all. Puzzles are a little troubling because if you play a guy who's really, really smart and you come across a puzzle and you can't figure it out, you're like, I can't play my really smart character because I can't figure this crap out. But Sherlock here totally could. So mostly I've been running it on decisions and dice stuff. But one of the decisions I always encourage the GM to build into each session is, you know, decide if you want this to mostly be about we're trying to make profits, if you mostly want to this to be about risk, or if you mostly want this to be about discovery. And so by having those be decision-based, it really keeps the players invested because they are getting to choose the kind of stories that they want. You can't, you, you're not just funneling them into mystery after mystery because that's what you like. It's like, okay, do you want this to be a mystery or do you want to go and follow this thing that's probably just going to wind up with you shooting a bunch of aliens with guns? Your call, but you can't have both. So that is the, you know, the, the, the structuralism of Termination Shock is, you know, here's how you build a session. The other game I've got uh, that I'll be kickstarting early next year for my sins, I did something similar where it's like, okay, here's how you structure a game session. But I took a much more sort of Western lit crit approach. So this, see how familiar this sounds to you guys from English classes. The structure of a story is you posit the, the situation and then there's rising action and then there's a climax and then there's descending action. Sound familiar? Yeah, sure. yeah, sure does. Yeah, this, this is what we all learned in high school. And you can read a lot of stories and absolutely see how that worked. So what I say in Grimoire is I'm like, okay, every game session, you want it to be like that. And so I'm like, okay, think of it as you've got your introduction scene, rising action, more rising action, climax, falling action. So that's roughly five scenes for a single night's gaming. Now, each scene can be either a character scene where we find out more about what makes these people tick. It can be an action scene where things get, you know, get rearranged, where irrevocable things happen, where, you know, the the where things change. Or it can be an information scene where you're running around and gathering clues and figuring out what things mean. And my advice in, uh, in Grimoire is never put two scenes of the same type back to back if you can avoid it. Never go from an action scene to another action scene. If you've just had an action scene, now it's time to either figure something out, you know, possibly something, re- probably, hopefully something relating to the conflict you just were in, or it's time to have a character scene in which you reflect on or develop on or figure out what just happened means to you. So, uh, and so this is, is me basically applying all the game stuff I've run to the idea of, okay, well, here's the literature recipe for a good Western style story to, okay, if you don't have 
all the experience with writing a ton of short stories and analyzing them, here is how you can just take the really brief Cliff's Notes idea of it and Frankenstein together your story for your players. That actually leads me to a question. Sure. It's so, really good. It's an interview. Yeah. Right? Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad the journalist agrees. Um, <laughs> so a, a big part of gaming in general is improvisation and collect, collaborative storytelling. Yes. I feel like this grimoire way of doing things, grimoire, excuse me, got that war war mix up there in syllogisms. Um, but I, I feel like this works for people with a certain literary mindset, but then you have to deal with the fact that you're, you are the GM with your own specific ideas and then the players have their own specific ideas. How do you like, how do you deal with the GM player interface there? It's like, okay guys, we're doing, we're making our uh, MFA story. Okay. The way I think it interfaces, I mean, when you walk into a game as a GM, you generally want to have some kind of framework for what you think is going to happen. In Termination Shock, these frameworks are like a decision tree, and you can wind up way off on one end or the other end. You're probably going to wind up stuck with the main plot. But I encourage people to say, oh, you know, pick a subplot as well. In Grimoire, I think it lends itself a little more towards a mission based orientation. For people who aren't familiar with Grimoire, the the premise is that there are both wizards and mutants in the modern world. Uh, Mutants have weird, inexplicable powers over the physical world. Wizards can summon immaterial, invisible spirits that influence probability and give them just ridiculous luck. Everybody hates wizards. Everybody loves mutants. Mutants have the best PR. Wizards are regarded as scary weirdos who tamper with that which man was not meant to know. Uh, and in the new version, I'm, I'm keeping that dichotomy pretty uh, clear and stark right from the beginning. It's like, okay, are you going to be a group of wizards living like righteous outlaws fighting the power? Or are you going to be a bunch of mutants who are enforcing and upholding the status quo, possibly at the risk of being jackbooted thugs. And so it's, it, it lends itself more to a mission focus that uh, like Delta Green has. Um, and I think that's okay. I think a lot of people like having the setup of, okay, this week's session, you get this mission, you know, you're in Delta Green, you're going to go uh, check out the house on Spooner Lane. And, you know, you're, you're, playing music from a darkened room. You go crazy. Congratulations. Uh, similarly, in Grim War, it could easily be, all right, you're a bunch of uh, you know mutant superheroes working on Uncle Sam's dime, and you just got word that uh, some Nazi sorcerers in Appalachia have, uh, you know, are doing something bad. Go bust them up. Hoorah. And, you know, when you're one of the, uh, the mutants, the wizards seem like, oh, why are they always so lucky and composed and everything breaks their way and their hair's always perfect. And, you know, if you're on the wizard's side, it's always, oh, why are the mutants always so stupid and yet so beloved and rich and famous and adored? So that's kind of the, the, the conflict that's, that's cooking up 
in uh, grimoire, and I think it lends itself to more of a, a uh, pre-structured, you know, railroad end of the continuum approach. Whereas Termination Shock's charm is that, oh no, it's just buck wild all the time. It's more better angels than, uh, well. Yeah, better angels. Okay, the the game I wrote where <laughs> I never once saw a game stick to my preconceived plot for like more than 15 minutes was <laughs> In Space. Did you guys ever see this one? Yes, on the website, isn't it? Yeah, uh, so In Space with three A's and an exclamation point at the mm-hmm. end was uh, my attempt to make it sort of an off-brand Futurama role-playing game. And uh, it's completely diceless and works on a, uh, a token economy. So players are on a much more even footing with the GM because they can say, oh, no, I'm really, really determined to have this happen to the point that I will push, uh, I will go all in with my my tokens. And when you have things go your way, it costs you tokens. Uh, When things don't go your way, generally you get a token as a sort of consolation prize. But the truly bizarre element of In Space's token economy is that anytime someone else makes you laugh, whether it's the GM or another player, you have to give them one of your tokens. So the people who are consistent laugh getters, the people who actually are funny, as opposed to the people who are trying to be funny, usually wind up with the most ability to influence the plot. (laughs) I love that. All right. So that that leads me somewhere. I think I think what you're doing with all these different systems is you've sort of structured them as different like kinds of stories. Right. Like like the. Uh, my brain just broke the noir emulator right is very clearly a dirty world god i keep thinking i I did it earlier vance that's me i'm the vector my it's like i i want to say shades of gray but that's the introductory scenario so like that that's clearly like like sort of an internal like character arc thing that's expressed through like you going around and basically getting the shit kicked out of you until you solve a mystery you know yes Noir um, style. Yeah, noir style. Like but like with this MFA like project, like you're you're doing like the very traditional like folkloric arc of so I I wonder, do you have that in mind beforehand when you're doing like a mechanical build, or is it something that like No, it emerges no, it, it emerges, emerges organically still? afterwards. Okay. Um once it's like your I, I almost always start with the dice or with the mechanics. And once I see what they do through play, I adjust the tone and uh, setting accordingly. And then once I've seen what the tone and uh, you know, what the, the tone that has grown around the mechanics is, then I'm like, okay, so what kind of support is a GM going to need to maintain this tone and this type of story with these mechanics? And have that, you, ever, you know, uh, have you ever found yourself going the other direction? How do you mean? Like saying trying I, for a tone with a, with a set of mechanics and like going somewhere else that you didn't expect. Well, the first draft of mechanics for, for Godlike were extremely tactical 
individual combat. Uh, it was inspired heavily by the dice game Button Men, and I wanted it to be because you know the the setting for Godlike is uh, low powered gritty supers in a very deadly World War II. So it's it's a lot of oh hey look you've got some kind of super flamethrowing power from your hands. Enjoy being shot at by every sniper they can throw at you. Um, and so the uh, the first set of mechanics I had for that were all about, okay, so you make all these really interesting tactical decisions and you have different dice type depending dice types that you roll, depending on what you want to do. And, you know, the more, the more experienced you are, the more dice you get to roll. And so you can do more things and, and have more options and defend yourself while you move an attack. And it was great for players and an absolute nightmare for GMs. Hmm. You know, as soon as you had more than like five Jerry's coming at you, everything slowed down to a total crawl. So I took the mechanics from that. I'm like, these are clearly not going to work for what Dennis wants for Godlike. And I turned them into Meatbot Massacre, my first experiment in crowdfunding. And my, uh, I'm like, okay, back to the drawing board. What's something that we can resolve a little faster when you're a GM? And that was when I stumbled upon the foundation of the one roll engine, which as I've mentioned before, arose from fooling around with the storyteller system and being like, well, okay, so what's the difference between raising the TN and requiring more successes? And, you know, coming up with the idea of what if we just did matches instead of having a set TN? Mm. And yeah, it was, it. a lot of these mechanics really do feel more like they are discovered than invented for me which I know is very different from how a lot of my colleagues work. Everyone has their own processes and that makes the world more interesting. Well, yeah. Oh, and this is, this is what I, uh, you know, I I studied in grad school was I, I, you know, did research on the creative process, right. Mm -hmm. And how do people come up with ideas? You know, how do people create things? And some people are like Edgar Allan Poe and are very, conscious and mechanical and, uh, you know, grind through all these alternatives and do things very meticulously. And other people are like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, where it's just like, oh, well, no, I just marinated my brain in poetry for 30 years. And now when I squeeze it, poetry comes out. Just spoke about a grim war. When can we expect that Kickstarter? Is there anything that you can kind of share that is going to be, hopefully, you know, don't hold me to the first two months of 2019 sometime in there, but hopefully sometime in the first two months of 2019. That is what would make Shane happy. And of course, when Shane's happy, everyone's happy. So what's going on with Grimoire? It's getting its own set of bespoke one roll engine rules instead of being a wild talents, instead of being a wild talent supplement. I looked at it, you know, with fresh eyes, uh, you know, years after or writing it. And I was like, if I was playing this, there's a lot you have to do and a lot to keep track of and a lot that's fiddly. And, you know, m- much like when I reworked Unknown Armies, I'm like, okay, what's the fun stuff? What's the stuff that people tell you about? And I'm like, 
let's remove everything. Let's remove as much as we can. That isn't the cool stuff people want to tell you about. Mm. And I decided that the cool stuff people would want to tell you about in uh, Grim War is either their cool mutant powers or the awesome spirits that their wizard had conjured. And so I'm like, let's make conjuring simpler. Let's make it a little more streamlined. And similarly with the mutant powers, I'm like, I'm just going to give you a menu. I'm just going to, you know, give you a slew of, I think I came up with 25 of them or so. And the way they work is that, you know, your first mutant power is pretty weak. And then you can get a second one. But if the second one you get is of the right type, they interact and you get this third emergent power that's much better than the other two. Hmm. So you can start out as a little mutated and then get more mutated as you go on, as your your, uh, biology gets more and more weird. The uh, skill system for it, I went for something much closer to Better Angels and A Dirty World, where it's just like, no, everybody has... You know, you got five skills, five, you've got five attributes and five approaches. And so anything you want to do is going to be one attribute and one approach. So if you're doing anything with technology, there's a whole line of technology. And it's like, oh, technology plus attack. It's shooting people with guns, Uh, you know. So the attributes are physical, mystical, educational, technical, and social. And the approaches are attack, defend, access, learn, and manipulate. So a lot of it is fairly intuitive. It's like, oh, access is getting into things. Manipulate is making things do things. So those are the only ones I feel are a little ambiguous. So it's like, oh, technological defend. It's fixing something that's broken. Uh, You know, technological access is doing all the uh, subverting the keypads and picking locks and breaking and entering. It's the I'm in that. Yes, that's exactly it. You know, technological manipulate. That's what you roll for any time you're driving a vehicle. Physical manipulate is, you know, oh, I'm going to throw or catch something or pick a pocket or hide something. Anything that's fine dexterity and physical access is, oh, I'm going to climb or crawl or run or squeeze through an enclosed space or go water skiing. And, you know, attack and defense, pretty straightforward. So between these, you know, so it's, it's like I want to break every possible area of human endeavor into these 25 categories. So there's a little squeezing, but on the other hand, it's, I think a little quicker than reigns, you know, six attributes with each with a a skill underneath them. And I think that works better for rain because those are more central. This, what's going to be central is your superpowers and your weird spiritual familiars. So, but the, setup for superpowers is kind of rigged to the attribute and approach system. So it's like, oh, well, I want to be a strong mutant, but then I also have this access mutation. So where do strength, where strength and uh, mute and access intersect, there's some third power that you unlock by taking those first two. That's interesting. It's sort of like Superman's like implied contact telekinesis to avoid destroying an airplane. Have you guys heard about that? That's that's what I've always thought. I'm like, this explains how he can pick up a building and not have the basement fall out. I mean, Superboy made that explicit with just always referring to his superpower as tactile telekinesis. 
Well, I, I don't. What a nerd. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even go to this fucking high school. I don't read comics. Why do I know this and you guys don't? <laughs> <laughs> heard to me that, like, there actually is a game design trend towards greater GM support. Um, like, at le- like, in RPGs more generally. Do you think that's got a long tail on it? Or is that something that's going to sort of peter off and go back to, like, Phoenix Command Crunch? I don't know. Uh, don't, I mean, don't say that. Who can predict anything? Uh, it is hard to see a downside to trying to make it easier to, to be a GM. I mean, I, I don't see any negative to lowering those barriers. It, it, probably one will pop up and, and make a liar of me, but GMs are a precious resource for any game that, that needs one. And, you know, you can run a game with two players and you can run a game with six players, but you can't run a game with zero GMs by and large. So anything that props them up, makes it easier for them to come up with the next session, uh, makes it less work for them to run a session or process events or to prep one. I think these are all positives. There's been so much focus on making games really, really appealing to players. And that's great because obviously I'm a player, but you also, you know, you also want to make it appealing to the GM because ultimately if you have a game that everyone wants to play, but no one wants to run it, it's probably not going to get played. Getting this back to a uh, termination shock yeah, and like pulling back on that idea. I think that's what makes it such an interesting concept to me. The, the standard terms at this point are player facing and GM facing. I think termination, fo- termination shock feels like it's chaos facing. <laughs> it's, it's not, as chaotic as all that. I mean, uh, while, uh, okay, the line from, uh, my favorite line from uh, my part of the new grimoire is wildness is the secret to role-playing games. Uh, you know, there is always the chance that your dice are just going to get uppity and suddenly what seemed like a cakewalk is now Vietnam. And that's what's great about it. That's what keeps you on your toes. But that's exactly what I'm pointing out. Like, you don't know how you will succeed, no matter how you roll. Like, you can stack it in certain ways, but you, you right. still have these three dice, and they're depending on how they interact, that will change the very nature of the success. Yes. Like, that, that, that's chaos. And I love it. Yeah. It's, uh, well, you know, it's the game being the game. And you can... You can sort of steer the skid. You can optimize your characters for certain things. The way experience works, right, is uh, pretty much every session or every few sessions, your GM gives you a choice between getting a new hit, uh, a new hit point of one type or another up to a maximum of double what you started with, which is you know obviously desirable, or... They might offer you a new permission. You know, permissions are rare. It's like, okay, you've been a pilot for a while. Now you've learned, you, if you want, you can learn how to navigate. Or, you know, yeah, you've been, you've been fixing the software for a while. If you want, now you can escalate that and you can start rolling to hack other people's systems instead of just 
fixing it when someone breaks yours. Or the other thing they'll offer you is, you know, oh, well, yeah, you deck that guy pretty good. You want an exploit that lets you deck people really good more reliably. Uh, or a fail safe where if you try to deck someone and fail, uh, you get a reroll. But so. these, are, these are like narrative choices. Like you can, like it, it adds a little bit of bonus, but at the end yeah. of the day, I mean, it's still- not, at the end of the day, the dice are still going to have their way with you. But, you know, at least you'll have more. At the end of the day, the dice may still have their way, but you can always, you, you have input. It's not completely random. You know, a character who is optimized to be a uh, a crazy combat machine has real significant and meaningful advantages over someone who never picked up the permission that lets you shoot guns. So, you know, you, you didn't see it just there, but I sort of shrugged. So, I mean, yeah, you can still have your character be consistently of a type, but when it fails, it's common enough that it's not something where you're like, oh, wow, I never expected to miss with my gun. Because, yeah, there's a limit to how reliable you're going to get. So uh, one, uh, a design that has sort of moldered for a long, long, long time now, I've, I've toyed with a, you know, a card-based game where, again, it's, you know, it's random in that, you know, you're, you're picking, you're drawing cards at random, but it's certainly less random because you're choosing which card you're going to play at a given moment. Hmm. But the, the the big problem I ran into with that design was, again, wait for it. It's a giant pain in the ass to GM because it's like, okay, so if I have three players, each of whom has five cards in their hand, does that mean that I have to draw 15 cards? Or does it mean that I draw five cards when the opposition is one character and 10 cards when it's two or no, but then I have, you know, having one player with one hand of 10 cards for two characters is not at all the same as having two players with two characters and two hands of five cards. So it turned into this giant quagmire of design and I'm just, you know, shelved it. Also the idea I had for, you know, how to produce it would have been way crazy expensive. But, you know, the idea that's popping up now is, well, why does the GM need to handle any cards? Why not have it be, uh, you know, one of these systems where it's like, okay, no, it's all based on what the players play. And the GM just has set numbers. So I might revisit it sometime after Termination Shock and Grim War and this novel I've got in the works and, you know, short fiction. Is the novel called, because I know your last one was called You... The last one was called You, but this one I went uh, an entirely different direction. The last one, the last novel was an unknown armies novel in the second person, which talk about talk about your lit major moves. Yeah, yeah it was that, real fun to read. Actually, I enjoyed it. It was a great I, read. I I was really pleased with how it turned out, but yeah, and and I think that probably. Uh, a gamer audience might be more accepting to a book that describes things happening to you rather to than you know being told from someone's point of view or happening to some third person because you know in games you're always hearing your GM say oh you're walking down the hall it smells terrible in here so, I don't know I honestly feel like felt like you in this case worked better because I could not identify with the protagonist 
<laughs> was like, fuck that guy. Just like, fuck him. <laughs> just like, what? you know, just fuck him. <laughs> what? Just because he's a cranky, middle-aged, middle-class white man cultist? Greg, I am a young millennial who's been beaten down by the world. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, fuck him. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Um, no, the, uh, the, the novel I've got in the works right now that I'm showing to my fiction writing group is big epic fantasy. So it's, it's like a hundred thousand words or more and, you know, just sweeping, sweeping, uh, magic and, uh, invasions and intrigue and, you know, Oh, well, you know, princess in, in, uh, hiding after her country is conquered, trying to, gather up any resources she can to throw out the invaders. So, and, you know, it starts with the, the first chapter starts with her birth. So I, I've, I've had a lot of fun with that, but now I'm getting at the point where I'm like, do I need to maybe cut out a lot of stuff? We'll see what the writer's group says. Yes. Just, I mean, just the yes. Answer, the answer is always going to be yes. Uh, how good it is. Sorry, dude. Well, just Yes. <laughs> But my darlings. <laughs> well, darling. you know what they say about your darlings. You have What's to kill that? them. I do know what they say about my darlings. <laughs> yeah, and only yours, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just yours. Oh, um, Greg, one more question. Mm-hmm. So will Wednesday, Wednesday Night Drug Club ever uh, surface? Good question. What <laughs> I might do with that, since, you know, people didn't want to ransom it out. What I might do with that is take another look at it, get a cover for it, and uh, you know, sell it online uh, through Drive Through Fiction, and see if that's a better uh, better vector for it. Because yeah, I don't want I don't want to leave that unreleased. I will give you twenty dollars right now just to send it to me. <laughs> just saying. So uh, thanks, Greg, for swinging by and discussing this. I was looking at the uh, Terminal Shock Kickstarter page right now. It looks like. Uh, backers could jump in at a $10 level and get the PDFs. What the deal is, if you want to get a hard copy in America, it's 20 bucks. 20 bucks. What okay. you can get for 15 bucks is a code to buy the book at cost. And the reason we do that, that's like the non-American option because that way it's one reward tier that works for people in Europe or people in Australia or people in South Africa or South America, where, you know, all those different postal zones are going to have very different postage rates for a print on demand book. But this way I can have just one reward tier and it's, you know, buy it at cost, get it shipped to you for whatever it costs to ship where you are. To buy the book and have it, you know, to buy the book, the book's going to cost 20 bucks. Yeah. It's roughly, and roughly five-ish of that is the cost to print as a print-on-demand book. So, yeah, while this may look cheaper than buying the book, in the U.S., I believe it's basically a wash. Elsewhere, it's the only way to manage shipping uncertainties. Hmm. That looks pretty cool. I, I only lament that I missed out on not get, being able to get the Spruce Goose. I didn't jump in on that quick enough. Well, I actually, we're getting a hundred of those, so I can open up more. And the reason I've been opening them up uh, in stages is I don't want to 
commit like half of them to a reward tier that nobody wants. So as they sell out, I replenish them. Okay. So yeah, keep watching. Oh, we'll do. We'll do. And uh, we will certainly be watching for Grimoire in yeah. the coming months. So Greg, thanks again. It's, it's been a pleasure as always and look forward to talking to you again. Yep. See you at one last, right? Yep, definitely. One All last right. thing before this goes off. I uh, just uh-huh. want to say, um, Greg, you are really, really good at getting patches. It's like a- I have, I have too many of your patches at this point. I have a lot of them too. I'm like, I need to get one of those biker jackets, but uh, I get them all from the same place. They do a really nice job. It's, you know, American patch. Uh, I think it's just called American patch. So I just want to say, is. I get, I get a lot of uh, compliments on your termination shock patch. Oh, really? Well, yeah. that makes my day. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. Oh, our pleasure. You have a good one, man. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. Not all fights are won by skill, some are won by luck. Don't ever give in. You've got to keep on trying till you lose or you win. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Wait with hope for the big 2-0. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Let it roll, let it roll.